Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Today's guest is the amazing award-winning Irish author Louise O'Neill. Louise actually came on Control-Alt-Delete right at the beginning when I first launched this podcast, so I'm so excited to have her as a returning guest. Louise has written a feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid most recently, and it's been published by Scholastic. A spokesperson for the publisher describes the surface breaks as Hans Christian Andersen's dark original fairy tale is reimagined through a searing feminist lens with the stunning scalpel-sharp writing that has won Louise her legions of devoted fans. As you probably know, if you watched the Disney version of The Little Mermaid, Ariel changes her body to please a man. She is at the beck and call of her father, and she even loses her voice. When you think about it, the Disney version really isn't at all that feminist. But I got to interview Louise at Waterstones Piccadilly about her new book, this feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid. And we did it as a live recording in front of an audience We discussed feminism, writing fantasy literature, her inspirations, and why mermaids are back on trend again. I hope you enjoy this episode, and um, definitely grab yourself a copy of Louise's most recent book, The Surface Breaks, and, um, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Here it is. everyone thank you so much for coming I'm so excited to be here um let me just introduce Louise really quickly and then we can crack on because when Louise well actually maybe it wasn't you maybe it was your publicist but someone asked me to host tonight and obviously I replied within two minutes immediately in cat block saying yes please we met on a train to Margate yes well we had known each other for a couple of years before that um we social media it, it it we, you know the way I felt like we were like really good friends and then when we that, on that train we realised that was the first time that we'd actually met first person. We just went person. straight in. I feel like everything, all of the sort of small talk just didn't yeah. happen. It was like, anyway, Louise O'Neill, for anyone that doesn't know, obviously you're all here because you're massive fans of her like I am, is an incredible award-winning novelist. I actually had to write down a list of your books because I, I just don't want to get them confused. Mm-hmm. I've read them all, I love them. We have Asking For It, which was hugely successful and being adapted for a play at the moment yeah which is incredible and all the other things um only ever yours which i read on a holiday i think a couple of years ago and that stayed with me and then almost love you've got coming out too and then obviously why we're here as well the surface breaks Mm -hmm. so exciting and you're dressed as a mermaid (laughs) so let's let's kick off i wanted to start by saying how much I loved it. Oh, it's, it's a retelling of an old classic, but it doesn't read too modern. You've, you've obviously mm. kept those inspirations mm. for old kind of fables and storytelling. Yeah. How did you do that? Well, I think, you know, it was, it was actually the summer, I think, of 2016 when Lauren um, Fortune, who is the editorial director of Scholastic, approached me and she asked me would I be interested in writing a retelling of The Little Mermaid, uh, a feminist retelling. Um, and, you know, I, I really should have said no because I was at that point sort of knee deep in writing Almost Love, um, my first novel for adults. Um, but I think I just really hesitated because the, I, I was so obsessed with the story as a child. You know, I grew up like, you know, by Inchdani Beach, you know, it was just sort of half child, half sea creature running wild around the place. Um, so there was a part of me that was just, I couldn't say no. And 
when I decided to to do it, you know, Lauren was really generous and she said, you know, you can you can really reinterpret this in any way that you want. Like you can do a really like a modern version of it. You can, you know, do like an allegory, something, you know, anything. Really just let, you know, your imagination run wild. Um so what I initially did was I just reread the original um, uh, fairy tale, which I hadn't read in years. It's quite dark. It, it is so dark, and actually, I think I'd forgotten quite how dark it was. You know, I mean, I was really surprised by the violence in it. You know, um, when uh, the Little Mermaid goes to, you know, when she, I mean, there's there's so many elements to it, but like I suppose the violence of it when she takes the potion, you know, the magic potion to transform her tail into legs and just the pain that she, you know, obviously you don't see that in the Disney version, but that in the Hans Christian Andersen, I know, shocker. Um, I, actually, it's funny, I've made friends with um, Abigail Disney, uh, who's Walt Disney's um, uh, granddaughter. She has a house in West Cork. It's not honestly that weird. Um, and, well, it's not a house, it's a castle. She's like, do you want to come to my house? And I was like, of course oh I want God. to come to your castle. This is amazing. Um, anyway, so we were chatting about it because she's a real feminist. And she was like, yeah, I'm really glad that someone's retelling. But she said, don't tell anyone. So don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I suppose the Disney version doesn't have like the violence in it in the original fairy tale when she, you know, it feels like knives are, you know, running up through her thighs every step that she takes it feels like she's walking on broken glass and her feet are bleeding um, it's just it's so intense and I suppose as well I was so shocked by the scene where she goes to the sea witch um, and she says that you know that she wants you know she wants to um, get legs and the the sea witch says well you'll have to give up your voice um, and the little mermaid asks well how will I make the prince fall in love with me, you know, if I don't have my voice. And the sea witch basically says, you know, men don't, you know, like it if you talk too much anyway. And <laughs> I mean, maybe she has a point there, but anyway. Um, and uh, and she also said, you know, but you'll have your lovely form. So like, you'll have your body. I was just, I was like, Jesus. It's such a strange a, thing to like tell children, yeah. you know? Well, I had this kind of realization because I love, I loved that film. Apparently mm. I used to have it on repeat yeah. at my yeah. grandma's house and they were like, there's other films, Emma. And I was like, no, <laughs> this one again. And then when you, when I read, you know, your book and also reread some of the Hans Christian Andersen version, I thought, oh my God, yes. She changed her body for a man. Yeah. She was obsessed with pleasing her dad, like with the rules that he made. And then also she lost her voice. And what's the word that you use, I think, in that Grazia piece, like mutilate yeah. her body. Yeah. Well, for a man, yeah, and I think it's ruined. There's, I think there's, it is ruined. I'm sorry, <laughs> I have ruined Disney for like a whole generation of young women. I can't wait. Um, but um, yeah, so I suppose yeah, there was just so much in it. I think that was really ripe um, for a retelling, and because of that, actually, I wanted to hew as closely as I could to the original fairy tale um, because it, there was just so much in it, and I sort of felt like you know I wanted it to be timeless, um, and I felt like if I did that. Um, particularly I think with a kind of a fantasy element. It was a bit like with Only Ever Yours, um, with the dystopian element of that, that you could take aspects of, I suppose, everyday life that you find problematic and exaggerate them. And then I think because so, so much of that becomes normalized, we sort of just accept it as, oh, you know, this is just the way it is. And whereas I think when you read dystopia or when you read something like this, which is a fantasy, it actually highlights how odd some of the things that we have just accepted as normal are. Um, so that was, I think, a part of why I wanted to have that very timeless kind of classical feel to it. I've literally only just made that link between some of your other work and this one. Yeah. It feels different, but actually there's so much. Yeah. I only so have like two books in me. <laughs> it's like, so I may as well just keep writing it. <laughs> 
know that that way that you can transport yourself into something that is meaningful and real, but yeah. also set in a world that doesn't yeah. quite exist. Mm. Um, but I read a piece, I think it was by the Financial Times, but the headline was sort of, Are Mermaids on Trend Again? Oh, yes. <laughs> and I loved it because obviously The Shape of Water won yeah. an Oscar and... Um, well, they're back. Yeah. But do you think that's just an internet thing, or do you think that mermaids and this kind of fantasy literature is having a moment again? Yeah, I, th I mean, I mean, I you know, I just wrote a piece that came out today um, for Grazia, which is you know, is 2018 the year oh, of the yeah. mermaids. Yeah, and it did feel like that because I suppose I'd read um, uh, the Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, um, which is a, a debut novel, um, which is really spectacular about a sea merchant who gives up his fortune um, in order to buy a sea creature, um, and the Pisces, which I'm not sure if that's actually out. Yet. Oh, by Melissa Broder. Yes. yes. Have you read it? Um, no, I've got it to, it's, to be read. It, it's so it's so great. It's really surreal and really sexy. Like it's about this um, PhD student who has like quite a racy affair with a merman. And I was like, I can't believe I'm finding this kind of arousing. But okay, <laughs> sorry, just thought I'd share that with you. Um, so I think, and yeah, there was loads of movies coming out, and obviously there's the um, live action remake of the uh, Disney version, um, the uh, of the Little Mermaid, um, and I think. <coughs> Channing Tatum is doing a gender reverse of Splash. I'm like, okay. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I think it just, you know, there's like mermaid hair and, uh, you know, mermaid, those blankets, you know, and, oh and, god, um, yeah. and frappuccinos. And it, I, like, it's funny because I suppose when you, when you take a step back and you're like, well, why is this happening? I do think nostalgia is a big part of it because you know, for women in their late 20s and early 30s, like The Little Mermaid, the Disney version, she was, um, Ariel was the first new Disney princess in like 30 years um, and also came at just a perfect time where like branding was really sort of, you know, beginning to take off. So I think she sort of imprinted herself on the psyche of like a whole generation of young women. So I think there is that sort of element there that we're all sort of, you know, we, we are harking back, I suppose, to an earlier time. Um, and then I think as well, there's something really interesting in this year with, you know, I suppose just with the Time's Up movement and Me Too, um, and I think women are very tired of being silenced, which obviously The Little Mermaid was. Um, and also just, I think, if you take away from, let's say, the Disney or the Hans Christian Andersen version of mermaids, actually, you know, they're quite mercurial. I think they actually have the ability to be like very vulnerable um, and then very vengeful and they can be very powerful. Um, you know, it's even though they're, you know, because that's not really how we see women in, in sort of, I suppose, portrayed as being very powerful. Um, so I think there's something about that duality where the women are so often told, you know, you can be like a good or a bad girl, a virgin, you know, um, Madonna whore. You know, that's, so, so I think there's something really interesting about mermaids that seem to inhabit both of those spaces at once. So I think there's something about that I think is just interesting that this is the year where it feels like maybe we're just, we're just less willing to accept being, I don't know, labelled in that way. Yeah, because it's interesting that you just said, you know, there's such a power to mermaids and a mm. power to all this stuff because I remember people sexualising Ariel mm. and it was quite, I was like, it's a cartoon, that's weird. Yeah. But then people would fancy like Simba and yeah. they'd have like crushes on Disney. I think I, um, re I just read something online, it stuck with me, but it's nice for you to have written a version that isn't like it, from that gaze. Yes. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> Surprise! Um, it's an erotic version of The Little Mermaid and I hope you all enjoy it. Um, but um, yeah, no, I think, I suppose, you know, 
as I said, because I loved the story so much, like I was just obsessed with it because it came out when I was four. Um, so I was just the prime age for it as well. Um, and because I'd always had this real fascination with the sea, you know, I grew up on the, my, we lived on the beach for the first four years and then we, we moved. But I was, you know, my mom even said when I was small, if I got upset or if I got angry, you know, she would put me into a bath. Like it just even being in water, being around water, I found really incredibly soothing. Um, so when I watched The Little Mermaid and realized that there was creatures living under, I was like, oh Christ, I have to go. This is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and I, I, so I think as a teenager, with sort of a burgeoning sense of feminism and looking at the story and being like, oh, that's actually really fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think particularly for me, I suppose, wondering you know the idea of like of being obsessed with this story about a young girl who mutilates her body you know who harms herself really in order to be beautiful um and obviously having struggled with you know eating disorders as a teenager the parallels between me you know inflicting harm onto my own body in order to attain sort of what I thought was this ideal of beauty that I had to sort of live up to and then looking at you know wondering I suppose what impact maybe something like The Little Mermaid had or Sweet Valley High or, you know, loads of other things that I was, I suppose, consuming as a child. Um, So I really took a step back from it. I think, you know, it's really funny once you become a feminist, you can't enjoy any pop culture. It's like everything (laughs) is fucking ruined. Um, So I kind of took a step back and I was like, okay, yeah, grand. Um, And then I think this just felt like a chance for me to reclaim her, do you know? Um, And I didn't want to see her as passive. I didn't want to see her as a victim. I just wanted to see her as a, a girl who just wanted to take up more space in the world um, than I think the people around her thought that she should or that she was worthy of doing. And I, I really identified with that. I think it's so exciting that people like you are putting this out into the world because it is taking back the power. I, I was um, thinking of Holly Bourne the other day as well. Yeah. He wrote, It Only Happens in the Movies. She ruined the notebook for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> Ryan Gosling's character is really aggressive. <laughs> yes. Who does that? Who's like, I'm going to jump off of this, what is it, the Ferris wheel? Are you going to go out with me? Like, yeah. That's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you, when did you become a feminist? Like, when did you know? Because I think I came to it quite late. I'm curious. Um, I mean, I suppose... You know, when I was 12 or 13, like the Spice Girls were really big. So it was kind of girl power and, you know, that, that idea. So, but, which is really hilarious when it's, you know, five women who were put into a band by, and managed by a male, um, you know, who, like had a male manager who basically told them what to wear and what to do. But um, I, so I suppose I, I love that idea. And I think I really did feel at that age, you know, girls can do anything. Um, and I suppose my parents would have told us, myself and my sister that as well, that you know, you can do anything that you want as long as you work hard and you believe in yourself and, you know, you're just as good as anyone else and, you know, boys and girls are really equal. And, I, you know, I, I really believe that. Uh, and I think then it was as a teenager um, that that start, I started to realise that maybe that wasn't exactly how the rest of the world saw it. Um, and pr- I think actually the biggest thing as a teenager was um, sex and sexuality um, and masturbation and things like that, that it just felt like, you know, girls didn't do that or, you know, that was something that guys did and it was fine for them. But, you know, if you, if you did it as a girl, you were weird. And I, so I think it, it, it began to think, oh, this doesn't feel very equal. Um, and also I remember I had this boyfriend and his dad would constantly say, oh, you know, girls aren't intelligent. And I was like, like he's getting D's and everything and I'm getting like A's. What are you fucking talking about, you <laughs> fool? Um, and when I think um, this woman won, uh, how, you know, how to, what is that? Um, how to be a millionaire or... Uh, 
was that? How? Oh, the TV show. Yes, he wants, that, to be a millionaire. he wants to be a millionaire. Yes, and it was Chris a woman. Carey. It was a woman won it for the first time, and he just couldn't accept it. He was like, "She must have been cheating. There's something going on here." <laughs> Um, and it was when a, an English teacher handed me a copy of The Handmaid's Tale, I think it was 15, um, and I remember reading it and putting it down, and there's a few, because I read so much that, you know, there's a few books that have sort of had that impact on me, but I could, like on one hand, you know, but I remember putting the book down and actually thinking, <coughs> the way in which I look at the world has completely changed, um, and I think that was when I really started to call myself a feminist, but I think, like, I think, yes, I, I would have called myself a feminist, but I think I would have only begin, begun to really inhabit that at 26. Because I think my idea of being a feminist was sort of being a cool girl um, and being a manic pixie dream girl, which I absolutely was <laughs> until I was about 25. Um, and, you know, just really kind of playing into those sort of ideas of, oh, you know, I'm not like the other girls. Um, and, and, you know, I, you know, just like really like, just bullshit um, and sorry that's, it just, that's exactly what it is and now I'm like when you know if guys say are oh, you not like other girls I'm like other girls are amazing what are you talking about I want to be like all the other girls um, so I think it was only when I was 26 um, and I was working at Elle um, in New York and I'd had a fairly major relapse with anorexia and I'd started to see a therapist over there um, and she was just spectacularly good. Um, and I think it wasn't just that she was really focusing on eating and body dysmorphia, but she was really looking at it from a feminist perspective, sort of like looking at the, how the media was playing into this, how cultural demands of women were, were playing into that. Um, and I think once I really started to look at that, I actually got really angry, you know, because I think I was, um, I suppose I was 26 then, I'd had anorexia and bulimia kind of on and off since I was about 14, 15. And I really felt, angry I think at maybe the, the years that had been stolen from me um, and from a combination of patriarchal demands and you know the media and obviously you know emotional vulnerability as well so I think because of her and because of her constantly pushing me to really inhabit that sense of feminism I think by the time I left New York I was really kind of fully you know what I mean I'm still learning because I think you know then there were certain things that I thought were, re were really important and you know I, I remember writing articles for a national newspaper that I write at home and I read them now and I actually think they seem really outdated you know there were certain things that I would have said um, that now I think are just a little bit narrow-minded so I think it's kind of like a, you know I'm much more interested now in trans um, you know in like trans issues um, and intersectionality um, and things like that that probably wouldn't really have entered my sphere until I was maybe 30 do you know mm -hmm. I feel like that's why we need to be more forgiving as we evolve I mean you've definitely done you know you've had no like I'm absolutely terrified that um, something's going to happen. Like any time an interview is about to come out, I'm like, this is probably the one where I torpedo my entire career and just sit back and watch. I know. I always drunk tweet and I'm like, oh yeah. my god. Um, but I was going to ask you actually about um, with your writing about feminism. I find it really interesting that there's the columns that you write where you're you and you have your opinion, and then you have your novels where. Um, you write, but it's still you, but you kind of under the guise of characters. Can you be braver in one or the other, or do you find them just totally um, different? They're so different, um, and it's been interesting to see actually the impact that even the column um, has had on my fiction writing, because you know, you don't have time for writer's block. You have to get the 1,000 words done, um, and that's actually been quite useful. And also with um, the column, I tend to sort of go, okay, 1,000 words, this point, this point, this point, this point. And I've started doing that now with my fiction writing. Not like as 
prescriptive as that, but I'm like, okay, where are the next thousand words going to take me? Here are the three points. And it actually makes it much quicker and much easier for me. Um, and then obviously I can go back later and edit it. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think I'm always braver in fiction. Um, yeah, I think because like I, I well I feel like I'm pretty brave with the column as well. I, maybe my parents would say too brave, but um, <laughs> sure do you have to hide it from your grandma? I, I do. Some of them I do have to hide from my grandmother, though it's really funny because she she seems to get her hands in them anyway. And I'm wondering, does a lot of it go over her head? She said, that was a lovely one. I'm like the one about porn. What what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like you know. So she, I, I I think some of it does go over her head. But um, you know, my parents are great, so they they don't mind. But I I think that there is. I try and be as honest as I can in both, but definitely with the column, you do end up tempering it slightly or trying to put in sort of caveats to kind of protect yourself or, you, you know, I'll write it and then I'll read back over it and I'm like, you know, here, here's the likely criticism that I will get, so I will edit that slightly or put in a sentence here or there just to kind of cover that criticism. Um, whereas I think with the books, it's, I, I just write it the way that I, I feel it needs to be written and it's been interesting to see I suppose a lot of the criticism that comes with the books around the characters particularly you know obviously it's always the female characters it's so funny with Almost Love it's like about this really emotionally abusive relationship and like the guy is such a shit and everyone's like she's a real bitch isn't she and you're like what about him for fuck's sake um, and we just expect so little of men but um so I, I'm joking. You're great. You're great. Um, so I, yeah. So I think with the with the books, I can just be. I think as because I'm actually not that interested in whether people think the characters are nice or likable. I'm interested with the fiction in particular being as honest as, and as brutally honest as I can, which is why a lot of people come back and say, "Oh, that was a really uncomfortable book to read." And I think it's actually because people don't want to see those shadow parts themselves, particularly women, I think, because we're so socially conditioned to be nice and to be likable and to be agreeable. And you know, it's very important that everybody you know, think likes us. And so I think when you see the shadow parts of yourself sometimes reflected in that way, people maybe don't want to see it. Um, but for me, that's just the most important thing with my fiction is that it is as honest and as raw and as authentic as I can possibly make it. Do you think that there might be a reason then people, female authors do write unlikable, flawed characters or whatever, because it's almost like escapism from having to be No, I totally agree. It's all an, the time. It's absolute wish fulfillment. Like it's not that I, I mean, not that I want to act in like really selfish or monstrous ways, but I think for me, I am a real people pleaser. Um, and I know that I really want people to like me. Um, and when I meet people, if I get a sense that someone doesn't like me, I'm a bit like, oh, what's wrong with you? I'm amazing. Um, but, so I think because of that burden, I think which I have kind of carried for like years and I, I feel sort of resentful of that in another way. So I think it's just, there's something very freeing about writing a character who is just really honest. And also the thing is, is that when you're writing a character in a, in a, um, in a work of fiction, Especially if it's from you know it's if it's from their point of view, it's inside their mind, it's their internal pro, you know thought processes. So you can't you can't censor that. Mm. It's like because what's the point? You know if you're going to if you're going to write about a character and do it honestly, and you're telling it from their point of view, like everybody has mean spirited or you know selfish or unkind thoughts. I mean most of us don't act in them or you know don't voice them because we're you know inherently good people. But like not to include I suppose that thinking. When you're writing fiction, I just think is just dishonest. Um, so, 
Yeah. Have you ever had it when people assume that you're like the main character because oh you're all the time. Woman, and it's like, <laughs> is she based on you? It's all like, the time. I've written a fictional character. All the time. Funny with Almost Love, um, it hasn't been, um, people seem to think she's such a bitch that it totally couldn't be me. Um, but with asking for it, I got it all the time. Um, like, and they were so blatant about it. They'd be like, oh my God, she's such a bitch. Now, is she based on you and your experiences? <laughs> <laughs> what impression I'm giving off here um, but actually and it was funny I remember being at one festival and this man coming up to me um, and um, he said you know, I just wanted to tell you that I'm really sorry about your parents about your parents and I was like are they dead <laughs> I mean it's weird that you would know but well, tell me more um, so I was like how do you mean he was like I'm really sorry that they weren't there for you I was so confused I was like what are you talking about and he was like you know after like Honestly, I, I, until I finally got it out of him that he thought that I had been gang raped and that my parents had been really shit. Did think it was a memoir? Yes! And I was like, no, no, like it's, her name is Emma? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, I just thought it was like a very thinly veiled um, autobiography. Oh my God. So I was like, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you do crazy. get some, I, it's, it's re it is really interesting when you're talking to other female authors though because they all say the same. I don't but ever. I, you know, Jessica Knoll, who yes. wrote The Luckiest Girl Alive, that was based on her, yes. which I only just realised. Then I thought, oh my God. I know, she, she wrote a great was it, what piece. The Lenny Letter, yes. I think. Yeah, but what, this is what annoys me that it, they, people write for a safe space, mm. a newsletter, a feminist newsletter, and then, and then it's clickbait yeah. on the other news channels, and it's like, Please take the nuance from her essay. I know, I know. But, yeah. But it, I don't think male, like, I remember um, I was doing an event in uh, Ireland with two Irish authors, Lisa McInerney, um, who is a spectacularly good um, author, and um, Rob Doyle, who uh, writes um, short stories, and he's, um, he's, I think he's written two, I'm not sure if it's one or two novels, but he got up and he wrote, uh, he read out a short story, and he read it really well. He was very funny, and um, it was re really well done, but it was about, he was living in Paris at the time, and it was about a short, um, short story writer living in Paris called Rob Doyle, and he read it, and it was really good, and it was really funny, but you know, got off, and everyone was like, oh, you could just see the audience completely accepted that as a piece of fiction. Now, if I got off, I read oh, a short story about an, an author called Louise O'Neill, I mean, it just, there's no way that, but you see that, look, even with, like, Larry David um, and Curb Your Enthusiasm, like people don't, they kind of just accept that that's obviously fictional. Whereas let's say like Alina Dunham um, and, and Hannah Horvath in Girls, like just the way she was conflated with that mm -hmm. character from the very beginning was just so interesting to watch, I think. There are TV reviews written by men where they're going, Lena Dunham in this uh, scene, and I'm like, that's not, she's yeah. not, you need to say Hannah if yeah. you're talking about a character, but yeah. yeah. But a lot about this book is obviously about nature and the sea, and it was very relaxing. I know you just said that when you're in water, you're relaxed. Mm. I was so relaxed reading this. I think it's because it just takes you away from everything, especially being online, mm. reading. We should all read. <laughs> I'm so happy we're all here in a bookshop. Um, <laughs> but I read a piece that you wrote a few months ago for Refinery29, or even re more recently than that. No, I think it was a couple of... Was it a couple of yeah, months Yeah, I can't ago. remember. It's amazing. If you, if you are um, on Refinery29 anytime soon, uh, Louise wrote an amazing piece about um, you know, her journey from intern in New York to best-selling author, and it's, it's really a great um, essay. And you talk a lot about how you do love nature. It's a massive part mm. of you and where you live and mm. living in Ireland and being surrounded by beautiful things. How much do you need that to do your work? I really need it. And it's funny because I always thought, 
you know, when I was growing up in Clonakilty, I really hated it. I hated living in a small town. I hated the lack of anonymity. I hated, I think, the expectations that were sort of placed on you. You know, I remember like going to, a, you know, like a, a, a meeting with my guidance counselor and it was basically like, well, your mother's an English teacher, so, you know, you'd be a good English teacher. And I just felt like I have so, like, I have like way bigger ambitions and dreams than you are giving me credit or giving me any space in order to achieve them. Um, and I think, so I was always like city, city, cities, and then I was living in Dublin, and I was living in New York. And I think by the time I got into New York, I was very much like, I really want to write a book. And I'd had the idea for Only Ever Yours, and I remember like talking to my dad about it, and he was like, oh, you know, well, have you started writing? And I was like, no, it's just, it's really stressful, and I, I, I don't have any time. And he was like, well, you know, you need to, you know, maybe get up earlier. Um, and I was like, okay. And, like, <laughs> uh, and he was like, oh, you know, you could write on the subway. And I was like, I, I, are you for real? Like, on the subway, I'm like trying to pretend that I don't see that pregnant woman in case she makes me get up and give her a switch. <laughs> Sorry. Um, hashtag feminism. Um, but, um, so I, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I think, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway, so it was when I, um, it was when I came back uh, to West Cork, and I think it was just all of a sudden because I have a really busy mind. I'm always thinking about things, and I've just got a really overactive imagination. And I actually needed just a bit of quiet and a bit of silence. And and so I think when I came home, and I just you know I went for loads of walks, and I walked on the beach, and I just really let myself be still. Um, and I think that's a real problem at the moment because I know when I was a kid, you know, like my parents would let me get bored a lot and then you'd have to read or you'd have to, you know, make up games or you'd have to do something to sort of entertain yourself. So I actually think all of us now, not just children, but adults as well, we never let ourselves be still, but we never let ourselves be bored either. So it's this, there's, there's not that much room for creativity, I think, to mushroom because we're always just distracted, you know, on our phones or, you know, watching TV or, you know, doing whatever. Um, so I think when I moved home and all of a sudden I, all I had was just quiet. And stillness um, and I just felt like I could breathe for the first time in ages um, so now when I'm writing I can't I always just go back to West Cork um, because especially you know it was obviously with writing the surface breaks um, you know living by Inchdani and being able to go for a walk every day um, it was just really 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 helpful on a creative level um, and a lot of just because I've always been so fascinated by the sea, just to go down there and just to look at it and just, I think, to kind of imagine, just to let my mind just sort of drift and sort of really try and imagine what an underworld, um, you know, a sea kingdom would look like. Um, and so it was just, it was really fun. I suppose I've written two contemporary novels with Asking For It and um, Almost Love. So with this book, it was just, it was just such a joy mm -hmm. because I suppose the other three books had felt like, I'd sort of carved something out of myself and like you know, stabbed it onto the page and it was just a really painful experience all three of them in different ways. Was this, like, from start to finish was just the most fun that I've ever had writing. Um, like I finished the first draft of Almost Love on a Thursday. I gave myself the Friday off because it was my birthday. Crazy, I know. Um, and then I started work on this on the Monday and from the moment I sat down to start writing it, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm loving this. And I suppose maybe as well, because I had the narrative framework in which to write, like I knew I had certain beats to hit. You know, her 15th birthday, the shipwreck, you know, going to the sea witch. So because of that, I could just kind of let myself, just my imagination run wild in between. Um, and it was just, it was so much fun, particularly the bits that were um, under the sea, you know, um, in the sea kingdom. That was just, oh, such a joy. Really, I had so much fun. Do you think it's important to have a little bit of relief? Because 
Well, I interviewed Ava DuVernay recently, and she said that she'd worked on Selma and you know some really, really heavy films. And then she went and did Wrinkle in Time, which is about um, well, about space travel and flying, flying palm trees. Has anyone seen it here? No. Um, anyway, it's, 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 no. it's so kind of worlds apart. But I just and she spoke about how actually she needed that in her mm. creativity to have a bit of relief from darker subjects. Did mm. you feel like you needed yeah, that? Yeah, I do. And actually, it's made me. It's made me, I think, look forward to the future that like kind of going, well, you know, maybe I'd write something that was funny or maybe I'd, you know, because I think every time I sit down, it does tend to come out quite bleak and sort of quite, you know, grim. <laughs> Don't know why, but anyway. Um, and I think it, it just now I'm like, well, you know, maybe I would write something that was a bit lighter or maybe I would write something, you know, that I don't, it doesn't always have to be a really painful sort of experience um, and I think that was actually a great learning um, just a really great learning experience for me and it was just it was just really nice because I was obviously writing that and editing Almost Love simultaneously um, and the edit of um, Almost Love was a was a tough one so it was just it was just like I felt like I had an escape that I could kind of go back into um, this book and this world um, and just enjoy it so it was great. It is crazy that you've got two kind of coming out very similar. I yeah, it's, I'm very tired. <laughs> but in terms of the publishing process for anyone here that you know is writing or is going to write in the future, um, so this book was commissioned, mm -hmm. and then obviously your other books, kind of you did pitch, and it's interesting how they slightly differ, but obviously the end product is totally the same. But mm -hmm. did you have any more or less input in certain elements? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think. I, I suppose maybe one of the reasons why I was able to enjoy this book as well and or writing the book and maybe why I've, I felt much more relaxed about it coming out was that there was an emotional distance between me and it because it wasn't my story. You know, that I didn't feel, I suppose, that sense of ownership over it in the same way. Um, and I could just I could just enjoy it. Um, and I think Lauren um, gave me like a lot of creative freedom. Um, so she was really very much like, you know, because that's how I work. Like, I don't, I, I know some authors like to, you know, give chapter um, outlines or, you know, whereas I, I tend to, I don't really know at the start of the book what the end of the book is going to look like. I have a very, you know, I'll have a certain idea. And obviously with this, you know, I knew the points that I was going to hit. But I don't even know. Sometimes, honestly, I don't even know what the book is about. Like, you know, but like, I'll know, which I know sounds crazy. <laughs> but like, it's only when it's finished and people are like, oh, wow, you know, this is, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Writing that down for like interviews, going, this is what it's about. Um, but it's. it's Tell like, me more I'm about so the book. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, that's a great blurb. Um, but um, yeah, so I think, I, I don't know, I think with, uh, with this one in particular, it was just about just, you know, taking the inspiration from the original story. Um, there were certain things that I wanted to say with the book, you know, there were certain things that I felt were really important to address and readdress from the original fairy tale. Um, but then, you know, the thing is that I say with all of the books is that obviously there's certain messages in them, but you know, I would hate for it, them to feel didactic or I would hate for it to seem like it's an issues book because I think the story just has to be interesting and the story has to be compelling. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, the most important part of it really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think coming back to the publishing part of it, I suppose the writing aspect is lovely. You know, it kind of feels like you're in flow and it's very creative. The editing is really difficult. Um, and I think you really have to have, um, which I did with Lauren, um, a really good um, editor um, uh, who you trust. Um, because, 
you, you get too close to it and it's really hard to sort of see the wood for the trees and then there's someone else coming in and saying this doesn't make sense, this needs to be cut, you know, you may be expanding this. She wanted to see more of the sea witch, which I was very happy to hear because mm. she's the best character. Um, you know when you're a kid and you're watching it and you think Ursula's terrible and then you rewatch it as an adult and you're like, oh my god, Ursula is such a babe. <laughs> um, so I really wanted to again, I think, reclaim her uh, for my book yeah. as well. She is. Isn't she? I want to be more like her. Yes, I know she's such a badass. Because I think it was, I suppose, as well, with the research with this book, um, sorry, I'm just thinking because when my dad read it, he came, he like, he's obsessed with it. He's like, it's his favorite one. He's like, will not stop. And anytime I wear anything that looks vaguely, he's like, you look very mermaidy today. Your hair looks very mermaidy today. <laughs> you do today. Well, yeah, I do That's today. True. He would be, he would just be in his element if he saw me today. Um, but he, when he came, when he, um, when he read it, and he was like, I mean. Do you have any books on mermaid mythology I can read? What What were you reading now? What was your research? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Calm down. Um, but I did do a lot of. Um, I, I read a lot around mermaid mythology, um, and I also read a lot of academic essays um, on you know just gender politics in fairy tales in general, um, and they were so interesting. Um, and I think a lot of it was around the idea of the witch. Um, and they were like, you know, the witch is, it tends to be like one of the most compelling characters um, in the book and I was or in, in the fairy tales. And also, I think I suppose just the ageism and the sexism um, that is so latent in the portrayal of um, the witch, you know, she's, she's very much ostracized um, and very much living at sort of the edges of society, basically because she doesn't, you know, she's refusing to, I suppose, comply or, you know, become complicit with that society's rules. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to make my sea witch very sexy and very empowered and you know there was just I think you know I suppose particularly I suppose when you look back and the way that like fat women are sort of um, framed within the Disney narrative um, and or within you know fairy tale narratives in general I also wanted to kind of subvert that as well. Yeah oh my god I'm just thinking about Ursula now. Yeah. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. But um, I had one last question before I think we'll open it up. If you've got one now's the time to get it in your, in your head but um with your books being so successful and so popular and you know you are a feminist icon I've said it, I've oh said it. um at least to me anyway yeah um oh. but it means I guess that you then have a platform or a bigger platform for your own voice and your own mm. political beliefs and you are quite vocal mm. with what you believe I just wondered how that's been in terms of you know, people go from sort of listening to then like really listening, mm. which is a privilege and an amazing thing and a r result of being an author. But um, yeah, how do you manage that as well now? It's, it's hard. Um, I have found myself slightly pulling back from social media um, because the attention can feel very intense. And, and also, you know, what we said earlier, that often doesn't feel like there's room to make mistakes either. Um, and I'm always really willing to be called up on things. And I have totally been called out on things on Twitter and I've been really, actually really grateful because how else am I supposed to learn if someone doesn't say, actually, I, you know, I found that a little bit off or that didn't really sit well with me or whatever. Um, but sometimes it can feel like people particularly trolling I suppose it did get very intense um, after in 2016 when I was asking for it particularly in Ireland so I was doing a lot of media um, you know I, I presented the documentary on rape culture in Ireland for RT which is our national um, broadcaster um, and I was doing a lot of radio and, and uh, TV um, and print and I just felt really exposed um, and I think what also really bothered me was this kind of 
the, the way that I was framed as sort of this insane radical feminist. I, like, I always thought like my articles or my columns were really measured um, and then you'd, people would just be up in arms over them and you know sending crazy emails and crazy letters. And, like I live in a really small town so like this stuff would come in, Louise O'Neill's feminist chronicle to you and it would arrive. <laughs> and I was like oh for fuck's sake you'd be opening it going oh, okay another death threat wonderful. Um, but um, yeah so I think that that did feel quite intense um, and I did I did just have to take um, a bit of a step back and it does it, it feels really it, 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 it's kind of like you're very torn because you're like okay I don't want to let these people win I don't want um, to feel like I'm being silenced I don't want you know younger women to see what's happening to me and be frightened by that and and you know I suppose not feel like they had the liberty to use their own voices but then it was really affecting my mental health so it's like well I suppose I have to prioritize um, that as well and I think at least I have the column you know at least I have that weekly outlet that I you know I can express myself and it's out there and I don't really need to explain it you know before people would be would come and attack me and I would just mute them because actually I think I've been pretty clear I had a thousand words I think it was pretty clear in the column this is how I feel if you disagree that's totally fine but unless it's a like an actual respectful dialogue I'm not really interested in engaging anymore yeah. I've only just learned that that mm. I don't have to reply yeah just you, mute you can just mute delete button. or get an email and you know you yeah can just yeah and it is it it feels quite shocking like I remember someone contacting me and telling me that there was two forums kind of on our like it's two Irish versions of reddit and they were like you know they're just basically I I was a little bit like why have you told me about this but like basically dedicated to tearing you apart and she was like I mean the last time I counted there was 50 pages I was like 50 pages but like I, I know myself I would never like I would never look at that like I know there's some people who wouldn't be able to resist going on to that and reading it but I just know I would never sleep again so like I think you have to like I take certain measures to protect myself like I never look at Amazon reviews I don't look at Goodreads I don't like Google myself or Twitter search my name because it's That's the really shock it's the shock actually because when someone asks me and it's really nasty or it's like a you know a bad review that they felt the need to share with me and it, it does feel like for about five minutes you're you're actually shaking because it just is like I can't believe this person who I've never met hates, really hates me and then you go but I've never met them so who, who cares like but it's that initial yeah it's true kind of adrenaline it's like I'm just rush buying a pint of milk and now I'm yeah, someone's just said this to me. Yes. I didn't expect this. Yes, yeah. and it's so weird. It feels so personal because it's on your phone, but yeah. Mm-hmm. But I remember when my first book was coming out and I asked you for advice around kind of, you know, being afraid of reviews and stuff. And you, you, I remember you saying to me, just tell everyone around you if they see anything bad or negative, don't tell me, do yeah. not tell you. And yeah. I thought that's really true. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to pass it on. No, you don't. You really don't. No. <laughs> you really don't. <laughs> um, well, actually, one, one very quick fire question before we go to questions. Um, I, know I always ask this on my podcast, it's just natural, but what are you excited about for the rest of the year? It can be book-related or it can be very personal holidays, it can be anything. Um, well, actually, there's two parts of that. The first one is that I have booked my first holiday in, like, three years, um, and I'm going in August. I've, I have already booked, like, three different holidays over the last year and had to cancel them all last minute because I had just too much work stuff going on. So I'm really excited for that. I'm going for 10 days. Um, and the thing that I'm... Actually, what I'm... This is going to sound really sad, but I'm, I have an idea for a new book, and I'm really excited just to start writing it. Um, because I find that because I know everyone's like oh give yourself a break give yourself a few months off but I think I know myself that when I'm not writing I feel 
a little bit off kilter. Like I need it to kind of keep me steady. Um, so I'm really excited to start writing that. So I have it oh, in my diary. You know, when you like before I was like, well, when the muse strikes me, I shall start writing. And now it's like in my diary, the 18th of June, start new novel. <laughs> so I was like, that's the only, that's like the next kind of free time I have. So do you feel like you need to grab the idea or it might go away? Um, I, well, actually what I think it is, is that like, you, it's collective consciousness. We all live, and we're like, particularly as was in, let's say, Ireland or in the UK or you know, in the States. So we we're all kind of consuming the same media um, and listening to the same, you know, podcasts or reading the same articles. So actually, the likelihood of someone else having the same idea is pretty high. So it's really who gets there first. So sometimes it's like you just when you have the idea, you just have to run with it. Oh my God, that's so true. Mm. Thank you, Louise. I'm still a little. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>